We are in the book of the Judges. The 20th chapter. This is part 26. This is the 26th sermon I have preached. Going verse by verse, because it's awesome, through the book of the Judges. And today I'm I'm kind of dropping us, if if you're joining us for the first time today, you're being dropped into the middle of a, I mean, 26 sermons long series. And today really was going to pick up from last week. This is kind of like a, a part two of three. Next week's sermon, we'll put the little bow on this and tie this up. But this is what you missed last week. Judges chapter 19, the story of the Levite and his concubine. Levite has a concubine that is kind of a second-class wife. She leaves him for some unknown reason, goes back home. Uh, He waits patiently for four months. She never shows up. So he goes and he gets her. And his father-in-law just gives him so much hospitality, so much kindness. As he's traveling back with his concubine and his servant, they need to stop for the night. And his servant says, listen, we're going to be right here in Jebus. This is pre-Jerusalem because King David has not taken this yet. He hasn't, he's not alive yet. The servant says, hey, we're stopping here. The Jebusites control this, but let's stop in Jebus. Uh, the Levite says, no, no, listen, that foreigners live in that city. Let's just push on a little bit further until we get into Israelite-controlled territory, to the tribe of Benjamin, to the city of Gibeah, because that way we're definitely going to get hospitality. We're definitely going to get, like, you know, safe passage. Let's just press on. And they do. And, of course, they get there and they don't receive any of that. In a very Sodom and Gomorrah-like way, the men of Gibeah, their fellow Israelites, come out and they de- turn over the Levite so that they can rape him all night long. The host tries to negotiate this story and and ultimately the Levite ends up grabbing the concubine, his second class wife, throwing her out and and they rape and abuse her all night long. He opens the door the next morning. She's there on the doorstep. He says, hey, get up, let's go. She's unresponsive. The Levite picks her up, puts her on the donkey, takes her home, and then chops her up in a bunch of different pieces and airmails her body parts to the other tribe. It's an incredibly graphic story in Judges 19. I mean, this is viewer discretion advice type of stuff. If this was like on HBO or something. But that is what's happened. Far from receiving hospitality, far from receiving kindness, far from receiving uh, a safe passage, these fellow Israelites turn. And of course, this isn't really new in the story of the judges. This is the darkness that, that sets over the entire story. Well, that's where we pick up today. That's just happened. They've all gotten parts of her body in the mail. And we begin in verse 1 of chapter 20. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people, of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. This is no casual gathering. This is a military camp, highlighted by the fact, the reference that there are 400,000 men who drew the sword. They've shown up for this. And when you understand this, 400,000 other Israelites showing up for war, within the context of 
this entire book, it, it's kind of remarkable. It's, it's kind of a big deal that this nameless Levite was able to do what none of the other judges, the other deliverers, had been able to do. Like, not even Deborah or Barak had been able to raise this type of support to mobilize the military resources to this extent where they've got 400,000 men of war ready to go. And you'll notice the narrator's choice words are very intentional here. In verse 1, And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord. Very intentional usage right there. Congregation assembled, one man to the Lord. The the use of the narrator's words is, is really designed to highlight Israel in this moment as a spiritual community. Which, of course, if you've been here, if you read the book of Judges, you know that they're not really much of a spiritual community at all um, in any type of good, wholesome, God-honoring way at all throughout the story of the Judges. And especially when you contrast uh, the spiritual community that he is wanting us to see in this moment, especially with the previous account of the Benjaminites in chapter 19, it really compares and contrasts. But that's, that's the setting here. They've all gotten a piece of her body. They've all showed up to this meeting All these features, they seem promising. Perhaps, perhaps Israel has finally got it. Perhaps they've finally gotten their act together. Perhaps they've finally just grown up a little bit and matured. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? They've gathered there. Maybe they've already heard. Maybe they're they're not entirely read into the story that I paraphrase with my introductory remarks at the beginning of this sermon. But either way, they're going to give this unnamed Levite the opportunity to once again explain exactly what happened. And the Levite, verse 4, the husband of the woman who was murdered answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel For they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. He doesn't exactly express a lot of concern for his dead secondary wife, his concubine. And the fact that he simply says at the end of verse 5, and she is dead, does not preclude the possibility that he may himself have had a hand in her death. I know there was some ambiguity last week. They abused, they raped her all night long, they being the people of Gibeah. And then she shows up on his doorstep. She's unresponsive. We don't know if she's already dead or if he just, maybe she's unresponsive. He picks her up, takes her home. And when he chops her up, did he kill her? Was she dead? We don't know. And even this statement, I think, doesn't exactly say 100% for certainty. You said, Joe, you ha- pick something for me. I-, I probably are on the side that she probably was already dead at this point. But 
regardless of the Levite's motives, despite what I think is his own self-interest, the effect of his speech is overwhelming. Here's how Israel responds. Verse 8, And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand. We're going to set aside ten percent of our, our soldiers to help run the supply lines, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. Um, It's about to go down. Here's a paraphrase. That's what's happening. They've gathered together. They heard what the Levite had to say. They are in unanimous agreement. No one is going home. No one's taken off early from work until this gets dealt with. And they are so committed to this course of action that they've already prepared to set aside 10% of their troops to to manage the logistical operations of what potentially could be a protracted campaign. They can keep the supply lines running, so if this operation takes longer than they think it might, no big deal. We're going to finish what we started. Well, they send out messengers to the tribes of Benjamin. Verse 12, And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore... Give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, right? The men responsible for raping and abusing this man's concubine. Give them up, okay? That we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. It's really a reasonable offer. It really is. Guys, we don't want to fight you all. The men responsible for abusing and raping this woman, just give them up that we may execute judgment on them. Really reasonable. But right here, you see Gibeah, really, and really all of, all of Benjamin turning into this sanctuary city. Not only do they say, no, we're not going to give them up, they raise an army against Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword. Besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, that city, they, they mustered 700 chosen men. And the men among all these, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. They were incredibly accurate marksmen. And the men of Israel apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The Benjaminites are incredibly belligerent here. Israel gives them, I wouldn't even call it an offer. It just seems like common sense. It doesn't even seem like this even needs to go to the negotiating table. Listen, there's people in your city. They're responsible for abusing and raping this woman. We just turn them over to us that we may execute judgment. 
doesn't even seem like this is up for negotiation, that it even needs to be negotiated. Benjamin not only says no, but then they raise an army of 26,000 men to go against Israel. Israel's got 400,000 men. Okay, the odds are not in Benjamin's favor. They are outnumbered. If you crunch the math, 15 to 1. For every one Benjaminite, there's 15 Israelites. Those are not good numbers. That is what they are facing. And you, you wonder, why are they acting so belligerently? Not only that, how are the people of Benjamin even justifying this? Like, maybe you could say, okay, they don't want to turn over their own people, but the fact that you're going to raise an army and oppose the Israelites, the other tribes, how do you even justify that? How do you justify coming to the defense of the men of Gibeah who acted so wickedly? How, how does that make sense? I'm thinking, like, unless you change the narrative... I don't know how you would justify that. Like, unless you maybe change the narrative and, and change the verbiage to maybe make it not sound quite so bad, right? Like, well, we didn't really rape her and abuse her as much as we just, like, overwhelmed her with too much stimuli, you know, and just kind of lessen the blow a little bit, right? They probably called it something like, well, it's not really murder. It's just a woman's right to have reproductive health options, right? Because that's what we do in 2019, just change the verbiage a little, create a little bit of different narrative. How do you justify that? Well, the battle lines are drawn. The Benjaminites, one Benjaminite facing 15 Israelites. And before they go to war, verse 18 says, The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. You look at this story, it's kind of optimistic. Well, I'm, I'm glad they, you know, they prayed about this, right? I'm glad they consulted with, with God. Like on the surface here, in verse 18, it, it's hopeful, it's optimistic that the Israelites would approach God, that they would seek his guidance. But this optimism is tragically short-lived. Here's the results of the beginning operations against the Benjaminites. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning, verse 19, and encamped against Gibeah, verse 20. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah, and the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. That'll wake you up. What in the world just happened? Benjaminites are the bad guys. God just told them to send the tribe of Judah up first. And they just get slaughtered. I mean, they got that 15 to 1 advantage. They're just toast. And yet, it doesn't seem to demoralize them. Verse 22. But the people, the men of Israel, they took courage. And again, formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it up on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening. You lose 22,000 men in one day's operation. That'll give you something to cry about for sure. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, 
go up against them. Verse 24, so the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Tell you what, you might be having a bad week right now, but uh, you think about what just took place here? You're trying to, man, do the right thing. And these are the results. When the world is, I mean, they're, they're seemingly going to seek out God's advice on this. And yet the, dis, the results are just proving disastrous. No doubt they're, they're, they're like, God, where in the world are you right now? What is going on? I don't get this God. I don't understand this God. You ever feel like that? You know, I look at this story just right here between verses, I don't know, 18 and 25. And there are some assumptions that are happening. There are some assumptions. For example, if you go to verse 18, they make an assumption. I didn't catch it like the first three times I read it. Look at verse 18. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? See the assumption? The people here assume that God wants them to go up and fight against the Benjaminites. It's the first assumption. Notice they don't pray, Lord, do you even want us to do this? Do you want us to go and attack them? Lord, what do you, what do you want me to do? What, do you want me to go here? Do you not want me to go? you want me to sit tight? They just assume, of course he wants us to go. That's the first assumption. Well, why not? So all they ask is, who do you want to lead the way? And of course he says Judah, which seems to mean that he's giving right, his blessing on this operation, but there's something that's not right. Case in point, the fact that day one, 22,000 men die. Day two, 18,000 men die. The second assumption is, they're in the right. They're the good guys. The Benjaminites are the bad guys. And of course, the Benjaminites are the bad guys. But they're not necessarily the good guys either. And if, if you've been here for our study through the book of Judges, you shouldn't be surprised by that. Judges is this perpetual cycle of Israel falling into sin, God punishing them with a foreign nation to oppress them, them crying out to God, God raising up a deliverer to save them, to drive away the enemy threat, then they're good on their best behavior for a while, and then they just fall back into that same cycle over and over. No doubt in their mind, Benjaminites bad, we're the good guys. Benjamin's are bad, but they aren't necessarily altogether that good. And these assumptions are happening. Assumptions are happening. And finally, after the second day's operation, after they lose an additional 18,000 men, they finally have a, I don't know, I call it a come-to-Jesus moment, where they're actually going to pause. It's very reminiscent, the story of, if you were here during our Joshua study, uh, of the Battle of Ai. The Battle of Ai comes right after the Battle of Jericho. Remember Jericho? Joshua fought the battle in Jericho. I won't sing it. That would be painful. I started to get excited there, but thankfully I held back and exercised self-control. But they go into Jericho, 
They take Jericho. Joshua gives a very strict order. When we go into Jericho, no one's taking any of the treasure of the city. The walls come tumbling down. Great. They go into the next operational phase of their campaign. The Battle of Ai should have been easy peasy. Roll right over these guys. And they don't. They lose big time. Joshua, of course, is all sad and mopey and depressed. And he's like, I don't get it. Like, what's going on? You, just, you could have handed us over a long time ago to the enemy. And what's revealed to them is that there is sin in the camp. This guy named Achan had violated God's command, stolen some of the things, kept it for himself. They deal with him. Then they go in. And the second operational campaign against Ai, they are successful. This is a story. I think it really has those very familiar parallel tones from the Battle of Ai. There's assumptions being made here. And I don't think anyone really contemplates that there could be a problem with me. I don't think we ever like to contemplate that something maybe is wrong with me, with us. Because we have a tendency to think much better of ourselves than we should. But after you lose that many men, uh, you start thinking a little bit wider in scope. Verse 26, then all the people of Israel, the whole army, that's important, right? Because remember after the day one operation, some of the people were weeping and crying. No doubt they were upset about the 22,000 casualties. Here in 26, he notes very intentionally, now all the people of Israel, right? God's got their attention right now. The whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day. Notice how their response is very different than day one. Until evening, they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. For the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. The Israelites may, I think, at this point, finally come to realize that their covenantal relationship with Yahweh is in doubt. That their relationship with the Lord isn't maybe as right as it should be, that there are some cracks in their relationship with God. In fact, that the reference, the parenthetical reference, right, in verse 27, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. Is it supposed to be? It seems... Under normal circumstances, the ark was supposed to be in the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, the tabernacle, where it functioned as the throne for the invisible God. But in this instance, the Israelites had brought the ark to Bethel from Shiloh, presumably, as the New American commentators point out, to function as a safeguard, as a, as a source of protection, a, a sort of good luck charm in the battle against the Benjaminites. And and this is pretty significant because the story begins, and even though verse 18, even though the the first three verses, like it seems so promising and that Israel is doing everything that they should be doing, right? Man, they're coming every Sunday. They're involved in small group. They're serving. Man, they've been reading their Bible every day of the week. They are charitable. They are generous in their giving. Right? I mean, they're doing everything that they should be doing. And then as 
soon as this surfaces, as soon as this surfaces, everything doesn't quite look so good. No doubt they begin thinking this way. After two consecutive losses to the enemy, an enemy that they outnumber 15 to 1, they begin to realize something's not right. God's got their attention now. And it is a wonderful blessing when God has our attention. Which is what he wanted throughout the book of the Judges. Their problem is that they are constantly turning their attention to other things to meet their needs. Which seems to indicate by the specific reference to the ark being there. It's not supposed to be there. And of course, they're crying and they're upset. You know, children, children cry when they experience pain and discomfort. Uh, this is without exception. But tears are, they're not enough. God's not after your tears. He's not on a mission to collect as many tears as he can. And, and they've made these assumptions that they somehow are on the side of God, that everything in their relationship with God is just perfect. And it's not. And now they're doing some real self-reflection. Finally, finally, and you can see how they respond after they lose this second day battle, right? Everyone is there. Everyone is weeping. Everyone is fasting. Everyone is, like, they're, they're making offerings, right? It, it really is a much different response than how they responded after the day one loss. It, it finally seems that they have really surrendered to God. It seems that he has their attention. They are broken before him. I mean, if you can't beat this one little tribe of Benjamin, one of the smaller tribes, you can't beat them when you outnumber them 15 to 1, then you got to think maybe something isn't right, and that's the whole point. They've assumed the only thing wrong in this story is the fact that these men of Benjamin have come before them for battle, and they haven't turned over the worthless fellows that were guilty of abusing and raping this man's concubine. Something that they haven't even contemplated. Could there something be not right in my walk with God? And I think for the very first time, they're no longer operating by these assumptions. They're, they're no longer operating by the assumption that they're going to just roll over these Benjaminites. Let alone that their walk with God is, is as it should be. And in the end, it reminds us that, well, you can't have real surrender we talk about that, right? Surrender. It's like this hyper-spiritual term sometimes. What does that even mean, right? I'm thinking, right? I, I don't think you can have a real surrender apart from obedience to God. You can't have real surrender apart from obedience from God. And oh, by the way, you can't obey God apart from the Word of God. Like, this is why theology is important. This is why doctrine matters. Because it gives all those emotions, all that passion, all that zeal for God, somewhere to take root in. Because if it never takes root, it will leave as quickly as it comes. 
Well, they've had this moment. Notice their response. Contrast their response here in verse 28 with that of verse 18. Remember verse 18? All right, who do you want to lead the way? Now notice their response in 28. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before Minister before it in those days, the ark, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease, right? And the Lord said, Go up for tomorrow, I will give them into your hand. There's a little bit of maybe humility in the, in the tone, right? Verse 18, Hey, who do you want to take the lead, God? Judah? Okay, cool. Judah, you're good. Verses, Do you, do you want us to even continue doing this? Do you want us to continue down this path? Do you want us to cease? Lord, what do you want? Do you pray like that? God, what do you want me to do? Are your prayers marked by that sort of humility before God? Well, they've been humbled. It'll humble you when you lose 40,000 men in two days. He can, he can humble an entire army just as he can humble a pastor or a college freshman. God says, go. He says, I'm going to give them into your hand tomorrow. So Israel set men in ambush, verse 29, around Gibeah. And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they begin to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they're routed before us as at the first Getting a little, maybe overconfident, you could say. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal, Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Arara and there came against Gibeah. 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and the battle was hard. But the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. The narrator gives his theological interpretation here. Verse 35. The Lord did this. God defeated Benjamin. God did on day three what Israel and their army, outnumbering them 15 to 1, could not do on day one or day two. And this is vitally important. I say verse 35 is probably the most important verse of this entire chapter. This was divine intervention. They pulled off this victory. How? It wasn't their bank account. It wasn't their best friend. It wasn't human wisdom or advice. It was God who did this. 
God was the one who did this. God was the one who fought for them. God was the one who rescued them. God was the one that bailed them out. And this is a vitally important theological point the narrator wants to make in this story. So don't miss this. This is important, especially for a people who perhaps were trusty in their own numbers or their own military plan or in the good luck charm because they had the ark there. No, it was God who rescued them, just as he rescued every single one of us at the cross. At that point in history where he lived the life we could not live, where he died the death we should have died and where he paid the price we could never afford to pay. We did not, nor could we, rescue ourselves by any other means than Jesus Christ crucified for us. And that's the point the narrator wants you to see. Don't miss that. He wants you to see that. God did this. Yeah, but they outnumbered them 15 to 1. God did this. Just as God kept them from what should have been an easy victory in their day one and day two operations. We pick up in verse 36. It's going to, this next section, quickly summarize in a recap sort of way everything that we just heard. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel, they gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them. And behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. And the men of Israel turned. And the men of Benjamin were dismayed. They were discouraged. For they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst, surrounding the Benjaminites. They pursued them and trod down from Nohah as far as opposite of Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to get them. And 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Rimmon and remained at the Rock of Rimmon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men and beast and All that they found and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. The Benjaminites realize this is bad, right? This is really, really bad. 
Israel's plan, we're going to set 10,000 men over here off to the side. We are going to engage just like we did day one, day two operations. We are going to feign defeat. We are going to withdraw. Hopefully they'll take the bait. They'll come out from the city and we'll pull them out. We'll continue feigning. We're being beaten. Then our contingent force of 10,000 men will sneak into the side and take the city. And once the city is taken, they have no retreat. We can turn and throw this giant net and surround them. They're cut off. They head for the wilderness 18,000 Benjaminites are cut down. Another 5,000 on the way fleeing. Then another 2,000 who escaped the first slaughter. They too are cut down. They go and they slaughter almost the entire population of Benjamin here in this story. Almost this entire tribe is eradicated. You can see this in, in verse 48. The, the men came with the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beast, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. This chapter betrays Israel, finally, I say finally, wholeheartedly involved in this holy war against evil. Yay. It's like only taking the entire book of Judges for this to happen. But in the end, all Israel is going to suffer. Do you see that? At the end of the story, all Israel is going to suffer for the sin of one city. It serves as a reminder that our sin, it affects other people. We forget that at times, I think. It does here, it does in 2019. Because with the annihilation the almost annihilation of the tribe of Benjamin. They lose nearly one-tenth of the male population of Israel. A tenth of the population. And you see the effects that sin has. You see the effects of not doing it God's way. And, and even though Israel has, has finally shown up here in this story with, with zeal and, and with passion for God, it's really unfortunate <coughs> that they hadn't operated this way the entire time. Like, in the end, it, it takes God bringing them to this very difficult point, this very difficult place for them to realize, maybe my relationship with God is not what it should be after all. In the end, they turn to God, which is great. He wins the battle for them. In the end, they, they turn to the only, the only hope they've ever had. A hope that they've left throughout most of the story of Judges time and time again to head for these so-called greener pastures of sin that never delivered. They turned to God here. It's just sad they didn't do that earlier. And that's the story of the judges, right? They're chasing after other gods. The other nations around them introduce them to these cultural idols. And they're constantly being pulled away from God. They're constantly chasing after them. God's constantly bringing them to their knees with the threat of foreign nations coming and knocking at their doors to get their attention. This is the cycle of judges. This is what's happening over and over and over again. Yeah, it's great that they got here now. So like, you know, welcome, showing up to the party. Could you not have done that like 20 chapters ago? You know, they've made this assumption 
that they are on the side of God. But, but here's the thing. You can't be on the side of God without the word of God. I want to hammer that point in. Because that was, the, that was what the problem they got into, right? The very beginning of the story. They, they assume that they are in the right. And, and this is really easy to do when your relationship with God is based really just on emotions. Like emotional highs. And it doesn't get much more emotional than if you get in the mail a chopped up piece of this woman's body. Okay, that, that'll set you off. Like that, that, that'll set you off. That'll, that'll move your emotions. 9-11, that's, that's a, a, a historical event that happened that I, I imagine many of us can relate to. Think of the images, the towers exploding. That'll move your emotions. Emotions aren't a bad thing. But if, if the word of God is not there to accompany them, like you can't, you can't self-examine your life apart from the word of God. Now, let me be clear. Emotions are good. I mean, I get emotional every time I preach. Not a bad thing. But, but we also need theology, guys. Theology that guides us beyond just our emotions to obedience. Because we know from the previous 25 sermons in this book that I've preached, they haven't been very obedient. This is why theology and doctrine matters, because it gives emotions a proper place. It gives the zeal for God, the passion for God, somewhere to take root. Because if it never takes root, it will leave as quickly as it comes. I, I saw Fox News picked up the story this past week. Uh, I think last Sunday at the university there was this Sunday evening worship extravaganza up on uh, the snowflakes up on the side of the mountain. Like 4,000 people. That was something. And uh, I'm thinking, that's great. Then what? What do you mean? What happened when it was over? Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? We... We'll get, I don't know, I'll use the phrase, we get on fire, right, for the Lord. We'll go to some camp, some retreat, some conference, and I am so moved, right? And then what? Then what happens? Right. Then what happens? Emotions, passions, zeal for God are not bad. Those aren't bad. They're, they're, I think they're, they're beautiful. I would say emotions and zeal and passion for God... I think of them as these beautiful little flowers, okay? Beautiful little flowers, but those flowers are going to wither away and die if they don't have something that their roots can go into to sustain them, some deep, some rich soil to sustain them. Emotions, passion, zeal for God are, are wonderful, That's, but they, they need the Word of God to, to keep them, Right? You know, the word assumption is never mentioned in this story. Actually, the word pride is never mentioned in this story, but I think both are actually kind of present in this story, assumptions and pride. Say, so, well, what has been the source of their pride? If, if, that's, if you're going to make that case, what's, what's been the source of their pride? And I would argue they seem to think that they are in the right, that they're the good guys. They seem to think that 
man, God definitely wants them to do X, Y, and Z against the people of Benjamin. They seem to be able to know God's mind. But the thing is, you can't know God's mind without really knowing the Word of God. You don't know which way is up, which way is down, apart from this book. And it begs the question for us, well, if that's the case, then where is our hope and confidence? Because if it's not in Christ alone, that's pride. It's idolatrous. You know what the best antidote to pride is? Someone says, humility. Well, that's, that's a good one too. The best antidote to pride is the theological explanation the narrator gives to us in verse 35. I said it was important. It's really important. See, verse 35, the narrator once again finally explains how this campaign was able to be turned around and the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. How did they pull this off? God did it! That's how they pulled it off. They didn't do it. God did it. And I get that you're really smart and you're really good looking and some of you are really funny and you're really charming and you're really talented. That's great. God's given some of you just amazing gifts. And every good gift, it comes from, from God. And yet, in the, in the same way, He single-handedly gave them victory. He single-handedly gave us victory at the cross. You had no hand in that. You did nothing deserving of that. Because you're not deserving of it. That's the message of the story. The message of the story is, Israel, you do not have it all together. Israel, you're not that great. I mean, you read the book of the Judges. I shouldn't be catching anyone off guard right now or by surprise. Like, that's the message of the gospel, right? As you see the parallels thread through this story, also thread throughout the narrative of the Bible. You're not a good person. If you were, you would not need a Savior. That's the message of the gospel. And it's also the warning of this story. The warning against sin and the warning against pride. And pride's that thing that prevents us from seeing the sin in our life. That's the problem with pride, right? There's a problem, but you don't think there's a problem because you can't see it, right? You're looking out the, the car window and it's got mud all over it. You're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's like, run the windshield wipers. No, 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 no. I don't need to run the windshield wipers. You're going to hit something, right? No, no, no. We're good. That's what pride does. It blinds you to the error of your ways. We got this. We outnumber them 15 to 1. We've also got the Ark of the Covenant here. We're going to roll over these guys. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. That's what pride does. It blinds us. And I think that's, that's the message of the story here. And God is the antidote. God is the antidote to the pride that blinds us from the cracks in our relationship with Him. Pride says, you're the Christian of the year. Right? You're awesome. That's what pride, that's what pride says, right? Man, I got all these Bible verses memorized. I'm there. I'm involved. I'm serving. I'm giving. I'm just, I'm awesome. And our, that's our tendency, right? Our tendency is when we look in the mirror, like, yeah, that's right. Got it going on. That's why most people think that they're much better than what they really are. I right, look in the mirror. 
Who do you see? I don't know. First person that comes to mind, Jenny Tatum, maybe. When in reality, we're, we're probably much more like a Jonah Hill type. I'm just saying that that's what pride does. It, it blinds us. But God is the antidote. God is the solution to the pride that blinds us. Pride says, yes, you're awesome. Pride says, you are in the right. Pride says, there's nothing you need to work on. Nothing you need to repent of. Humility says, let's consult with God. Humility says, let's ask God what he wants. And of course they do. In verse 28. God, do you actually want us to even continue fighting against Benjamin, or do you want us to cease? Pride consults with God. What do you think? What should we do? Let's ask God. This is my hope, my prayer. Let's ask God to show us our blind spots, and, and perhaps in his mercy, avoid the day one and day two type of tragedies and losses that Israel experiences, skipping ahead of the victory of day three that he won. So as the team comes forward right now, I want to pray for us that this would be more than just a story. Lord, help us to see our blind spots. Help us to walk faithfully and uprightly before you, God. Lord, protect us from getting too full of ourselves. Lord, I pray, if there are some weaknesses in our relationship with you, show it to us, Lord. Make it clear to us, God. If there's things we need to, to, to be aware of, make us self-aware, Lord. Lord, I pray our prayer life would reflect that. I pray our prayer life, God, would reflect the people of Israel in verse 28 way more than does in verse 18. I pray that we can get there, Lord, because we want to avoid, we want to avoid the, just the, the rock-bottom tough places, those difficult places that they had to experience in order to go from verse 18 to, to verse 28. Lord, help us, Jesus. Break us, Lord, from sin. Break us from pride, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would be rooted in your word. That we would love your word. Because without your word, we don't, we, don't, we don't know which way is up or down or left or right apart from your word. And I pray that, I pray that we would be so rooted in it, Lord. That we would be so biblically minded that when we read your word, Lord, that you point out to us our faults and you just continue to make us more like your son, Jesus. We need you, God. Help us, Lord, to think biblically, to believe true and right things. Help us to see. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.